Well, I have to tell you that I am extraordinarily excited about this sermon series that we are starting this morning that's going to run over four weeks this morning and three more Sundays, this series that we are calling Immovable. Um, Subtitled, because this series is so massive, it needs a subtitle, subtitled, The Unshakable Foundations of Faith. This is a series where we're going to, over the course of the next month, we're going to take time to examine the stuff that we believe as a community that is never, ever going to change. The stuff of which we are just, our convictions are absolutely just never going to move. We're going to spend the next four weeks laying out the four foundation stones of how we as a community understand the good news of the Bible, um, the stuff that is literally, like this is do or die kind of stuff for us, the stuff that is go to the wall over. This is the stuff that's real. And we're gonna spend these next four weeks exploring the unshakable foundations of faith, the stuff that's never gonna move because Subway Girl needs us to do that. I don't actually even really know her name, but uh, a couple of years ago, a while ago, I I, I don't know how long ago exactly, but um, a Subway restaurant moved into the little strip mall across the street from our Glenridge location where most of our staff offices are. And being the good neighbors that we are, we've, you know, several of our staff have made a point of going over repeatedly to welcome them to the neighborhood to make sure that they're feeling welcome and and that they're being appropriately patronized because the last thing that we'd want to see is for this subway restaurant to disappear. And so we find ourselves over there from time to time. And as folks from the staff stand there, inevitably conversation breaks out and there's a beginning to get to know. Faces become familiar and some who are better than me actually begin to learn names. And it was during one of these conversations over the counter at Subway where Subway girl looked over the counter at one of the guys on our staff and said, so if I were ever to walk across the street and visit your church, What is it that you guys really believe anyway? This series is for her. This series is for everybody who felt a little bit disoriented and uncomfortable during our August series called Just Breathe, where we talked a lot about finding God in the gray and how not everything is black and white and it's not always necessarily right or wrong. And we spent a whole week in that series talking about how to a certain degree or with a certain kind of belief, it doesn't really matter whether we all agree on the same thing, whether we all believe the same thing, whether we all hold the same convictions. We're to open our arms and to embrace each other in love, in essentials, unity, and non essentials, liberty, and all things charity. And this series is for every person who walked out of that message in that series and sent me an email and said, so what are the essentials? What is the stuff around which we are all going to live in agreement? This series is for you. This series is for anyone who's ever been 
confused by some of the teaching at Southbridge and wondered what our church really stood for anyway because from time to time you hear unconventional ideas being filtered from the stage. This, this series is for everybody who believes that good deeds will lead to goodwill in the community and open the door for the good news. And you have friends who are proverbial diner owners in our community. And you're hoping for the opportunity to explain the good news. This is what we believe about the good news. This is the stuff that is immovable, the stuff that will never change about what we believe about the good news about Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we begin this series, and we start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, as far as I understand, um, we have to begin this series on the unshakable foundations by looking at it, by talking about the most foundational thing about biblical faith. In one respect, it sort of, to my mind, sits beneath the foundations. This is like the footings underneath the foundation of biblical faith. This is what we want to talk about this morning is the thing on which I believe everything else about the truth of the Bible happens to sit. Because what we want to talk about this morning is about the nature of God, the question of God, of what God is really like. In... uh, 1961, there was a pastor by the name of A.W. Tozer who wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And on page one of that book, A.W. Tozer writes this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Tozer goes on to say that it is rare that a people will rise above the quality of their religion and it is rare that a religion will ever transcend the quality of its conception of God. Therefore, the single most important question is the one about what God is like. In fact, the single most telling thing about you is not what you say or what you do. It is what you believe to be true about God because Tozer says there is a secret law of our soul that dictates that our lives tend to gravitate towards our mental image of God. In other words, everything you say and do merely tells the rest of us what you believe to be true about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And so I want to begin the series, the talk this morning by giving you the opportunity to answer the question in your own spirit about what it is you think about when you think about God. I want you to pose that question to yourself in the quietness of these next uh, couple minutes. You can close your eyes if it helps or just, but I want you to do some reflective work. And if you were to, if you were to try to capture what you think about God in a word or a phrase or an image or a metaphor, what would that be? What is it that you think about when you think about God? Maybe for some of us, uh, we imagine God almost like the cop hiding behind the gigantic bush waiting to pounce at the the tiniest infraction. He's a God 
waiting for us to screw up so that he can jump in and punish. Is that what you think about? Or maybe for some of us, we have a more economic vision of God. God is the cosmic negotiator. And you're in the business of making deals with God. God, if I do this thing that is good or moral or religious or right, then I want you to do that thing for me. Quid pro quo. We make this deal and I be the person you want me to be and you give me a spouse or a child or a job or my health or whatever it happens to be. Maybe maybe for some, when you think about God, God's kind of like the heavenly Simon Cowell, a talent show judge who's evaluating every moment of your performance and who will reward you if you if you impress him enough. What do you think about when you think about God? Maybe for some, God's more like Santa Claus or a a grandfather, which is basically the same thing, a kindly old character who gives you good gifts, frankly, whether or not you're naughty or nice, whose job is just to fill your life with good things. Maybe for others, God's more like an abusive partner or parent or God is more like a deadbeat dad God is more like a a Facebook profile God is more like um, a stranger you pass in the street what do you think about when you think about God you can open your eyes if you have had them shut because the Bible is crystal clear in my opinion about what we are to think about when we think about God. In fact, though, the Bible seems to present God in a diversity of ways that have confused some people to imagine that there's an angry God of the Old Testament and a gracious God of the New Testament, or that the God revealed in Jesus is the God that's different than Paul, the God that Paul, whatever. Though there seems to be a diversity, I think when you boil all of that away, there is a fundamental picture of God that is presented in the scriptures that is intended to supersede, to transcend, and to trump every other conception we have of God. And it's found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, three simple words in the English language. God is love. That when you have had a genuine encounter with God, what you have genuinely encountered is love. The way love is intended to be encountered. It led a theologian in the 4th, 5th century by the name of Augustine to pose the same idea in the opposite direction and to say love is God. Which, by which the Augustine meant that when you have had a genuine encounter with love, you have genuinely encountered the divine which is kind of a dangerous thing to say because not all of our encounters with love are love the way John means it when he says that God is love. Because when John says that God is love, he doesn't mean that God is love like the fickle kind of love that you've experienced from the person who said that they would love you forever and then went on and left you for someone or something else. That's not the God kind of love. When John says God is love, he doesn't mean that God is the selfish kind of love like the person who said that they deeply love you and then went on to take advantage of you or to use you. When John says that God is love, he doesn't mean that God is the the sort of limited kind of love of the person who said that they loved us and would always be there for us, but then when we needed them the most, they weren't. 
John doesn't mean the conditional kind of love. Um, the sort of love that says, I will love you. I could love you if you met certain criteria or met certain conditions or made certain choices, then I'd love you. That's not what John means when he says God is love. He means that God is love in the way that love is intended to be experienced. And every genuine encounter that you have with God is going to be an experience of his love. And every encounter you have of genuine love is going to be an encounter of the divine. This is what Micah Bornis was talking about. That our pop culture, which is obsessed with love, with seeking out love and finding love and celebrating love and grasping at love, whether it's in poetry or music, top 40, rom-coms, whatever it happens to be, that our culture, which is obsessed about love, is only thinly veiling their desire for an encounter with the divine. When John says that God is love, what he means is that God is gratuitous love, generous love, giving love, genuine love. That God is a love that can't help but love. God can't make any choice other than to love. God can't help himself except to love. There is no off position on God's love switch. In fact, God is a little bit of a love addict because he's lost the power to choose anything other than love. That's what John means. He means that God is an inexhaustible, infinite, eternal love. That there is no beginning to God's love, nothing that happens prior to God's love, nothing that you need to do to initiate God's love towards you, and nothing that you'll ever do to terminate God's love at the other end because it has no end. God is never going to drain his love bucket. God is never going to run out of time. He's never going to run out of patience, and he's never going to run out of love for you. What John means is that God is the kind of selfless, sacrificial, safe love that has never once had a thought concerning itself. God doesn't love you for what God can get out of you. In fact, God never loves for what he can get. God only loves for what he can give. That's the only thing God ever thinks about is what he can give through his love. Which means that in God's loving memory, the only, ever thing, the only thing he ever and always thinks about is you. Never himself. In fact, he's willing to and has already given up anything and everything. All that he is and all that he has in order to love you. That's what John means when John says that God is love. And that is the only God that the Bible ever invites us to worship. The only God the Bible ever describes is a God whose very character, whose fundamental nature, whose very definition of being is love. And everything God does is a manifestation of his love. Right since the early days of the church, Christians have always believed that the God who is, is a God who lives or exists as a trinity, which simply means a three in one. In other words, the Bible teaches there is only one uncreated divine essence, almighty God. There is only one, but that singular divine essence that we refer to as God exists in a threefold pattern of interdependent relationship and action that we call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is 
only one God, and yet that God exists or manifests his being in the form of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I can't explain it. I, I can't understand it, and I certainly can't describe it in the time that we have this morning except to say this. That the God of the Bible cannot exist unless he is Trinity. Three and one. See, the Bible says there is only one God. And the Bible says that that God is love. The problem is those two things can't be true as they sit. Because if there is only one being, the one thing that being can't do is love. Or to say it another way, the only thing that being can love is themselves. Which means that if God is one and God is love, then the fundamental ultimate reality of the universe is selfishness. And that is not the message of the scriptures. What Christians have always believed is that God, so constrained by the very definition of his character, by the very nature of his being, which is at its core love, God is so constrained to behave in a way that is love that from all of eternity past, God the Father has forever generated the presence and the being of a co-equal divinity named God the Son. And from God the Son and God the Father together flow a third co-equal divine being called God the Holy Spirit. The undivided essence of God manifests itself in three distinct persons because God by his very nature cannot exist if he cannot love. And so God for all of eternity has lived in a divine community of love where the three beings of the Trinity have related to each other in love. The the Greek word that theologians have always used is the word perichoresis. It's two words put together. The word peri simply means around, like perimeter. Choresis or choreo means to uh, step in or to make a space for, to contain, even maybe to embrace. We get the English word choreography. It means to dance. That for all of eternity, this God whose fundamental nature is love has generated two other beings with whom he can live in loving community so that they, for all of eternity, can live in this divine dance of interdependent loving relationship with each other so that they can together be love. A 12th century French abbot said the father in the Trinity, the father kisses the son, the son kisses the father, and the kiss itself is the presence of the Holy Spirit, indestructible peace, unshakable bond, undivided unity, indivisible love. That is the nature of God. Because God is love and can do nothing but Love, the very creation itself, the fact that you can look around and see something rather than nothing is evidence of the fundamental nature of God's love. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us, the Trinity, God in community of love, make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here's a question. If God was love and living in an eternal divine dance of love, in interdependent relationships of love among the members of the Trinity, then why on earth did God create? 
What was it that God was missing or lacking? What did God need that compelled him to create something outside of himself? The answer is nothing. God never does anything out of lack or need. He only ever does anything out of overflow and abundance. The reality is that the love that God experienced in this divine dance of interdependent relationships of love within the community of the Trinity, that love overflowed from God into creation. God took that love and turned it outward beyond himself in order to create more objects to love. Martin Luther, the church reformer, has said that God does not find things to delight in. He creates them. That God created everything that is for the primary reason of wanting to expand the circle of the divine dance of the love that he'd experienced for all of eternity in the Trinity. In a sense, it's Similar to why parents, why a couple who is perfectly happy and perfectly united in the intimacy of marital love with each other, perfectly satisfied with the relationship they have each other, why that couple would ever choose to have kids. Why kids are the most disruptive force in the universe. Why would you take this beautiful bond of peace, this indivisible unity and undivided love that a couple experiences when marriage is working right and and mess that up by introducing kids? And parents will tell you who've chosen to have kids for only one reason. It's to expand the circle of love. That when you add kids, you don't take away from the love. You don't divide the love. You multiply it. You create kids to expand the circle, to widen the number, broaden the number of objects you have to love. And you don't just create your kids, you create for your kids, right? We create nurseries and bedrooms and playrooms and basements and swing sets and pools and sandboxes. We create family businesses and insurance companies and insurance policies and RESPs and Savings accounts, we create schedules and hobbies and passions. We create lives that become entire ecosystems that are fueled by the love that we have for our children. We create our kids to love them. And then we create for our kids an environment in which we love them, which is exactly what God has done in creating all that there is is the overflow of the love that was found in his being in the Trinity turned outwards, demanded the creation of more objects towards which he could direct his love, which means this, that God doesn't love you the way I love my wife. I mean, in one sense, that metaphor gets used in the Bible, but but I love my wife to the, detriment or to to the exclusion of all other women because she alone, to me, was a combination of characteristics that felt perfect for me. I had my list and I checked my boxes and when I looked at her, she delighted me because of who she was, especially in contrast to all the other relationships and all the other people that I knew. I selected her because I found delight in her. That's not, God doesn't love you the way I love my wife. God loves you the way I love my kids. See, we got together and got married and then we created a bunch of kids and now I love them just because we created them. There was no criteria. There was no selection. I didn't get to pick them. There are no conditions or terms. 
I love them because I created them, which means that you don't have to do something to make God love you. It means God made you in order to love you no matter what you do. And God's love for you will be consistent whether you love him back, are apathetic to him, don't believe that he exists, are rebellious towards him. Even if you hate him, God's love for you will be unfazed because it's not dependent on you. God's love for you is dependent on your existence, which he created in order to make you the object of his love. He will never love you more or less than he does right now. And he loves you infinitely just because you are. In fact, you are because he wanted to love you. That's what John means when he says God is love. And you know what God invites us into? This is all God wants from us. The end of the day. It's all God wants from us. He wants us to love him back. Matthew 22, expert of the law, comes to Jesus and tests him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Boil it down. What's the deal? What is it that God wants from me? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus says God only wants one thing. He wants your love. He doesn't want your money, he doesn't want your talents, he doesn't want your obedience, he doesn't want your service, he doesn't want your discipleship. He doesn't doesn't want those things. What he wants is your love. He wants you to love him back. He wants you. He wants you to be devoted to him. He wants you to be passionate about him. He wants you to be intimately connected to him. He wants you to build your life around nurturing this God-word-shaped life in a way that consumes all of your heart which in Greek philosophy is not your emotion. It is the core of your being. It is the you that makes you you, not the face that you put on for Facebook, but the real you, the authentic you. Warts and screw-ups and accomplishments and beauty and ugliness and all of it, the whole package. God wants all of that for you to give all of that to him in love. He wants all of your soul, all of the energizing passion, all of what energizes you about life, all the life that comprises your life, everything that animates you and motivates you. He wants you to devote that to him in love. He wants all of your mind. He doesn't want your academics. He wants that too, but he wants you to know him. The way we know our friends, he wants you to understand him. He wants you to get him. He wants you to know him the way we know each other intimately and deeply and relationally. I mean, that's the kind of love that eventually consumes all of your life and your money and your service and your obedience and your discipleship and everything you have. But that's, God doesn't want that stuff. He wants you. Krista doesn't want flowers. What she wants is me. And sometimes me giving myself to her in love means that I get her flowers. God wants us. The only thing he's asked for us is that we stand before him in faith with arms open wide and say, God, I I accept and receive your love. I choose to believe that though I don't deserve it, I do nothing to deserve it. And I often do lots of things to not deserve it. I choose to believe that you love me anyway. And I accept that. And I choose to believe, God, that life is only worth living when I'm loving you back with all I am and all that I have. 
And so I give you my whole life. I, I'm no longer living for the weekend. I'm not living to get an education, a job, work towards retirement, go on vacation and buy a Volvo. That is not my life. I choose in faith to believe that life really counts when I'm living in your love and living out your love. That's what God wants. He wants us to respond to his love and he wants us to expand his love. The second commandment, no one asked Jesus, but he gave it anyway. He said, the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. God says, I created you in my image, which was the kind of God who lives as a we, not a me. The kind of God who can only survive in loving community. The kind of God that opens my arms, that opens a space, that invites others in, that steps into other people's embrace and invites others into mine. Who chooses to live in love, in community. That chooses to open myself up to be a channel of his limitless, unconditional, selfless love as it flows into the lives of other people and to come to other people in vulnerability in a way that allows them to be a channel of God's love for me in a way that makes me a better spouse, a better dad, a better friend, a better person. And then to expand the circle even further, to include the poor and the forgotten, the different and the difficult, to include the stranger and even the enemy, the person who hates you and the person who hurts you. So that we can be, like Jesus says, like our, like our heavenly Father who loves all without distinction. Who takes the love that we have for ourself and uses it as the model of how we will love everyone else. Love your neighbor as yourself. That we will go through life looking around us all the time at the people who cross our paths and say, if I were them, what would I want someone to do for me? How would I want someone to love me and then to go and love them that way? This to me, this is the footing underneath the foundation of the good news of the Bible is that God is love and God has invited us to live in his love and to live out his love. And there is nothing else that makes life more worth living than that. See, here's the thing about Subway Girl. It was actually after a series of increasingly open and honest and vulnerable conversations between her and this staff person who repeatedly asked her about her and her family and her kids and her life in a way that showed that they care. It was when Subway Girl felt loved that she felt prompted to ask, so what do you guys actually believe anyway? And the answer she got was that we believe that God loves everybody the same and is inviting us to share his love with the world. That is a core conviction about the message of the Bible that is never going to change in our community. That the God who is love has invited us to live in his love and to live out his love. And that there is nothing else worth doing in the world. You close your eyes. In the quietness of this moment, in this space, I want you to go back to that image that you had of God. And I want you to ask God, in the quietness of your heart, to fill that whole imaginative space with a vision of his love.
to fill your whole spirit with a sense of his love. To fill your whole life with a passion of his love. And to fill your whole world with the overflow of his love. From a God who loves everyone the same and invites us to share it with the world. Father, we come to you as those who desperately need to live in your love. May we know it to the depths of our being. And we come to you as those who desperately need to live out your love so that we can experience real life and extend that life and love to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.